hearing the bell that way. We usually don't re- ring it quite that fully. And, uh, and I have a great appreciation for sound. I mean, it's kind of amazing. We hit this metal thing and it just fills the room. And I'm remembering when we, when we opened this building that this was given to us by Zen Center. And they they make really good bells at Zen Center. They the Zen bells are my favorite bells, and so I'm always so grateful that they gave this to us. Because often I, when I teach different places, often they provide bells, and I just hate it when you get a dull bell. <laughs> so I'm. <laughs> so I'm I'm grateful to Sun Center. <laughs> uh, and it's a nice way for me to start the talk, which is the last formal talk of the Maranasati retreat. And sometimes I've started this talk with a cartoon which I couldn't find. But it was a cartoon uh, from the New Yorker, a very New Yorkerish cartoon, a man lying on his bed, uh, you know, with covers over him, people all around, and he's lying there, and uh, uh, in you know, looks like a nice New York Upper West Side apartment, and and, uh, and everybody's standing around. He's saying, "I wish I would have bought more crap." <laughs> as he's dying that's his last words <laughs> and uh <laughs> so it, so partly as we end the formal retreat in the next day um we're looking at um we're continuing to look at death and one of the paradoxes is that death can appreci- can instigate an appreciation for life because we're all going to die and it makes life more poignant and more real at least in my mind and heart <clears throat> and allows us hopefully to give ourselves fully to life while we're here. Norman Cousins wrote, he said, death is not the greatest loss in life. Death is not the greatest loss in life. The greatest loss is what dies inside us while we live. Right? And so practice keeps awakening us here and in this very human way to to the human potential and to the beauty of humanity. And when I say humanity, I mean each of us individually and collectively. One of the ways awakening is described or talked about, 
a metaphor for awakening in Buddhism is that it's sometimes it's called awakening or realization or uh, or liberation. Uh, sometimes it's called the deathless, and that practice takes us to the deathless, to what's to that which is unconditioned by death. <clears throat> to the freedom or release or heartfulness, love, that is inherent and inherently possible for us as human beings to wake up. And the awakening happens by us being real. I like to think uh, real, being real leads to realization. Being real leads to realization. Being fake does not lead to realization. It leads to dukkha. <clears throat> this is from an American uh, Tibetan nun. Uh, Tubden children. And she said, many people have the misconception that spiritual life or religious life is somewhere up there in the sky, an ethereal or mystical reality. And that our everyday life is too mundane and not so nice. Often people think that to be a spiritual person, we must ignore or neglect our everyday life and go into another special realm. To me, being a spiritual person means becoming a real human being. Real human being. And, and of course, I hope, my wish, is that we all see when we practice in this way, all we're doing, this is so simple, what we're doing, right? Being aware of just what's here. It's not ethereal, right? A sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, a feeling, a thought, our reactions. We're just being aware of what's alive right here. And that awareness of what's alive starts to bring what uh, Analyo in his beautiful book, the Satipatthana Sutta, the Direct Path to Realization. That's the name of the book. I, I forgot that until now. That's what he calls it. Um, he, said, he talks about um, what we're doing is, is awakening a mindful presence. That presence is a, uh, excuse me, mindfulness is a, is a presence that's awoken within us. It's not just the mechanical I'm aware of. It's the presence of heart and mind that is here in a very full way. And, and really, I, I would say it, it's a presence of body, heart, and mind that is here very fully. <clears throat> and what I believe happens as we really get here is we appreciate being here. And 
that I believe, I believe is especially true when we acknowledge that what's real is that we only live for a short time, right? 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, and, and that's it. And it may, not, it may sound like a long time, even 100, but when you're 100, you feel like you've been around a while, but, but um, life seems short then, right? Because it's true, even as one ages, one gets it, oh, I don't know how long I will be here. And that's just true. It's not a bad thing. It's not a horrible thing, necessarily. But the gratitude that comes when we live with the truth of the way things are, when we're real with the truth of the way things are, the limitations awaken us and bring a gratefulness for being here at all. And so in the Buddhist tradition, the monks and nuns begin each day with a chant of gratitude in the Theravada tradition. Each day with a chant of gratitude. Grateful for practice and, and this gift of life. Right. And of course, it's also in other um, traditions, lineages. The Native American uh, elders begin ceremonies with prayers of gratefulness. Grateful to the Mother Sky and Father Earth and the Four Directions and Animal Plant, Mineral Brother and Sisters, right? That we're all here together with reality. And Tibetan monks and nuns do prayers of gratitude. This is prayers of gratitude for the suffering they have been given. Right? Which is one of the paradoxes about Maranasati is maybe we never want to die or it's a bad thing or we hate the idea, but one might actually be grateful that one doesn't live 300 years and get older and older and, and less and more and more unable to function well. And the, the Tibetan prayers is part of it goes, grant that I might have enough suffering to awaken in the deepest possible, to the deepest possible compassion and wisdom Right. Grant that I might have enough suffering to awaken to the deepest possible compassion and wisdom. And so there's this paradox with maybe anything, but with death. That Remember we started the retreat the first night I talked about basically my the name of my talk was that I had on it was normalizing death. It's just normal, totally normal, actually ordinary, right? That everything that's born dies. 
not a mistake, not they did the wrong thing, oh my God. I mean, we can feel those things at time and will, you know, that happens. But just life impermanence is one of the key teachings that Nikki was saying about the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, suffering, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, right? These are the three characteristics of reality. And so impermanence is talked about often and change and letting go and everything, nothing stays. But it's also seen in positive ways, the positiveness of things ending. And here I'll read you from Bhante Gunaratna, who I can't I'm, forget the name of his book. He wrote one of the first big books on mindfulness. Mindfulness in plain English. Mindfulness in plain English. Thank you. Yeah, which was really a, a first book. Like when there weren't mindfulness books, that book was there. And and he's a longtime practitioner. And here he he wrote. I read a I, many years ago. I read a little book he wrote about uh, Maranasati practice about death. And in the book he had this, he said, there is a yet another law, the understanding of which helps us in understanding death. And he's, because he's talking about the law of impermanence, the law of anicca, the law of change, right? And he says, there is another law, the understanding of which helps us in the understanding of death. It is the law of becoming, the law of becoming, or bhava, which is a, a corollary to the law of change, or nicha. It's a corollary to the law of change, or nicha. The law of becoming, like the law of change, is constantly at work and applies to everything. And applies to everything. When the law of change states that nothing is permanent but is ever-changing and, and ending, the law of becoming states that everything is always in the process of changing into something else, right? And of course, our science usually confirms this, right? That everything is in the process of changing into something else. Not only is everything changing into something else, but the nature of that change is a process of becoming something else, however short or long the process may be. Briefly put, the law of becoming is this. Nothing is, but is becoming. Nothing is, but is becoming. A ceaseless becoming is the feature of all things. And I, I, I'm hearing this, even as I read it to you, I'm hearing it again. I'm hearing the aliveness that he's pointing at about reality. It's not static what he's pointing at. Nothing is but is it becoming. That's the law of becoming. It's not just, oh, it becomes this. It's all becoming something else. And that's a feature of all things. And so, of course, when I say that, we are what he's pointing at, right? Have you noticed that about? We're ceaselessly becoming something else, somebody else, something different than we were 
20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, two years ago, a year ago, a month ago, a day ago, a moment ago, that that dynamism of life is sitting in each seat, is right here. And we are it. We are the dynamism of reality in that way. And so the appreciation that comes for life with change, with death, with ending and becoming. And so letting go, which we've been emphasizing as part of the Marana-sati practice, is ongoing. If I have this... <clears throat> Did I miss something? <laughs> um, Thich Nhat Hanh says it this way, he says, the heart of Buddhist practice is to generate our own presence in such a way that we can touch deeply the life that is here the life that is sitting here, and that we're available in every moment. He says it a little different. Yeah, that we can touch deeply the life that is here and available in every moment. We have to be here for ourselves. We have to be here for the people we love. And we have to be here for life with all its wonders. And part of this practice, we hope, will keep supporting the waking up of our eyes and ears and bodies and hearts and minds to see what's really here. What is this amazing gift that we've been given called life that is characterized by death? <clears throat> This is from Joko Beck, who was a Zen teacher. She was, uh, I always liked her because she was a piano player for many years before she got into uh, practice and then gave herself very fully to practice. She said, we can think of gratefulness in practice as a recognition of what is already here, that as we are present, aware, open, intimate with ourselves and our environment, we discover that gratitude is part of our experience. Being present is the gateway to gratitude. One of the great gifts of this practice is that we do not take anything for granted. We don't know what will happen next. We're grateful with new eyes. So gratitude becomes 
realized, understood, wakes up in our practice of simply being alive given the limitations of life. We'll only be here so long, right? And I mean, there's, I could use different words, but the word the last few years that I've been saying, it's just magical that we're alive at all. And I don't mean, oh, life's always great and perfect and, oh, I have, my parents never made a mistake and they were just the best people and that my friends love me all the time and they always see me perfectly. And I'm, so I'm kidding with you a little, but I'm saying it doesn't mean, oh, life's the way I want it to be all the time. But the fact that it's here at all is quite something. And I have my own, you know, near-death experience. And uh, somewhere in the talk I wrote something. I can't find it, but I'll just say it. It was so amazing after I started to recover was how grateful I was for the simplest things, right? Like walking in the park. And, I, you know, many of you don't know me, but I'm like, I grew up in Detroit, which I really loved, and in the city, not in the suburbs. And, uh, and, when, I, and, and when I got to uh, be 18, then I moved to New York because I wanted more city right? Because Detroit was okay, but it wasn't New York, right? And so I'm a city guy. I'm not really, I wasn't really a nature guy. I, I lived in, uh, I lived in Oregon for two years. The, the radical political street theater I became part of in New York at some point left and went to Oregon to become a political collective and a street theater, right? Because that's what we did. And we didn't realize they didn't have streets in Oregon <laughs> in the same way. <laughs> we, we were a little naive. <laughs> and, uh, and, so, and so I lived to, and we, we had a little money. We bought a little land, which was very inexpensive at that time outside of Eugene in the countryside. We had a couple buildings we built. I built a cabin and things like that. And, you know, and it was, it was fun. But, you know, after about eight months, nine months. Here, I'll tell you one more story. People used to come and visit us and we had two houses. One was the big house, one a little house. And they'd walk into the little house and they'd look around and they'd say, wow, this is just like the Lower East Side. Because <laughs> 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 we were culturally New Yorkers, these people I was with. And, uh, and it was great and I learned a lot and it was you know, I mean, I can say a lot of good things. Oregon's beautiful and all that. But I couldn't wait to get back to a city, really. And when I came to San Francisco, it was like, it was a beach town, but still it was a city compared to, you know. But, um, and so I'm not really, or I didn't used to be a nature person particularly. Uh, and so after almost dying, uh, just walking in the park was just amazing and just a whole different relationship with reality, with trees and animals. There are actually a lot of animals in Golden Gate Park. We live right next to Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. 
and I mean, in addition to squirrels and things like that, there and and pigeons, there are some amazing animals in the park, both um, coyotes and these long-necked birds, which I always forget the name. White birds, herons, egrets. Yeah, I once watched. I watched an egret, and it stayed so still, and I was re really close to it, and it was just like still, still, foom! And it got a little gopher, and I watched it go down its neck. Probably not a great story to tell in a Buddhist retreat, but, but, and, or, or, a white owl who came, we were walking at night once and came and just flapped its wings 10 feet away from us for a while, flap, 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 looking at us, and then landed, and then, but wasn't facing us, but then turned its head to us. <laughs> and it was so beautiful, right? And these weren't the kind of things I was so appreciative of, or didn't happen so much either. And just, just life. It's just life. That's all trees and birds and life, something. And so the gratefulness is in many traditions. It's a beautiful poem from E. E. Cummings. He said, I thank you, God. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees and the blue true dream of sky and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I, who have died, am alive again today. And this is the sun's birthday and the birthday of life and love and wings and of the gay great happening illimitably earth. How should tasting, touching, hearing, seeing, breathing any lifted from the no of all nothing, nothing, human merely being, doubt, unimaginable you. How should tasting, touching, hearing, seeing, breathing any, lifted from the no of all nothing, human merely being, doubt, unimaginable you. Now the ears of my ears are awake, and the eyes of my eyes are open. Beautiful poem of gratitude for being, just being here. <clears throat> uh, David Stendhal Rost, who's a beautiful being, I believe he's still alive, I'm not sure, but I believe he's still alive. He, he used to live here in, nor in northern, mid-California mid on the coast. There's a monastery, uh, a Christian Tra trap. I can't remember his order. Trappist. Anybody know David Stendhal? Pardon? Benedictine? Yeah, Benedictine monastery that he lived in. And, uh, and he's written and talked a lot about gratefulness. 
And he said, as we learn to give thanks for all of life and death, as we learn to give thanks for all of life and death, for all this given world of ours, we find a deep joy. It is the joy of trust, the joy of faith in the faithfulness at the heart of things. It is the joy of gratefulness in touch with the fullness of life. And so we would encourage you to continue your Maranasati practice as you go home. And you can continue it in any of the ways we've done. You could do the, the breathing, this could be my last breath practice. Or you could go online and contemplate bodies that have died. You can do that if you would like. Or you could do other things that we haven't talked about. Um, one can wake up daily and um, and acknowledge that one could die today, right? And we can be grateful for waking up as we acknowledge that we could die today. And then when we go to sleep at night, we can be grateful that we live today because we don't know. And then we could be open to see what happens during the night. You know, don't keep yourself up every night. But, but I'm, all I'm saying is these are, can be very quiet intentions and orientations that then impact our consciousness and how we live our life given we will die. And, we're, and it's part of our practice. <clears throat> or you can begin to recognize death around you. Like, when you're driving by a cemetery, just take it in for a second that these people used to be just like you, meaning alive, and that they didn't do anything wrong, they just lived the life, and it was over, it ended at some point. Or somebody in one of the groups, maybe it was in a group or in a discussion somewhere, uh, talked about how much they, as a child, they used to like to go and play in the cemetery that was near their house. And that that's something, you know, I would probably not suggest playing in a cemetery if you're an adult, but you, you can go and walk through the cemetery and see what happens to your consciousness as you take it in. Because it's part of life. Cemeteries, death, Endings. And of course you can refine it a little and just notice how each thing begins and ends. Each moment begins and ends. Each 
discussion with somebody, talking with a friend. It starts and, oh, it's great. I haven't seen you. Yeah, I was on retreat. Yeah, it was pretty good. It was weird. It was about death, but I liked it and they were nice and, and the Spirit Rock's beautiful and I played with the turkeys and da, 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 da. and you have this conversation and the conversation at some point will end and be gone. And you can just notice the beginnings and endings of reality. And that's a very, very, very powerful practice. And I've done it plenty. And it's, it's a good practice because the gratitude for what's here increases because it's, it's not just going to be here forever, the, the conversation or the friend, right? We don't know what's going to happen, the not knowing. Mm. So I'll read you a little story about someone who had a kind of a near-death experience. It's a woman named Alison Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. And she was a Buddhist practitioner who was in Asia and going to uh, retreat at Bodh Gaya that happened every year that uh, I believe Christopher Titmus used to um, lead. And, uh, and she had done it before and, and she was uh, on the road to, uh, to the retreat and she says a logging truck screeched around a corner on a remote Laotian jungle road and slammed into the bus she was riding, right? And my left arm was shredded to the bone as it smashed through the window. My back, pelvis, tailbone, and ribs snapped immediately. My spleen was sliced in half and my heart, stomach, and intestines were ripped out of place and pushed up into my shoulder. Right, so she had a serious accident. With lungs collapsed and diaphragm punctured, I could barely breathe. I was bleeding to death inside and out. It would be more than four hours before I received real medical care. Right, she continues. She says, as a practicing Buddhist, she was headed to the retreat where she planned to sit for three weeks. Instead, she was lying crushed, bleeding by the side of the road. And struggling to draw in air, I imagined each breath to be my last breath. Because she didn't know. And breathing in, breathing out, consciously willing myself not to die, I concentrated on the life force fighting its way into my lungs. And along with breath, pain became my anchor. Right? Along with breath, pain became my anger. As long as I could feel it, I knew I was alive. Right? Now, see, grateful for the pain because she knows she's alive. I thought back to, to meditation. I, she used to hate her leg falling asleep. She said, that discomfort could hardly compare to the torment of my injuries, but I discovered that med meditation could still help me focus and remain alert, and I'm convinced it saved my life. Her meditation practice. 
I managed to calm myself, slowing my heart rate and the bleeding, and I never lost consciousness or went into deep shock. In fact, I never felt so aware, so clear-headed, and completely in the present moment. Right? So here's the paradox of the Dharma and practice and what's possible with the simple meditation practice we've been doing. And then she says, six hours passed, no more help arrived. Opening my eyes, I was surprised to see that darkness had fallen. That's when I became convinced I was going to die. And as I closed my eyes and surrendered, an amazing thing happened. I let go of all fear. I let go of all fear. I was released from my body and its profound pain. I felt my heart open, free of attachment and longing. I felt my heart open, free of attachment and longing. A perfect calm enveloped me. A bone-deep peace I could have never imagined. There was no need to be afraid. And here's the interesting way she said, everything in the universe was exactly as it was meant to be. Right? So you hear the profundity of what happened in terms of the accident and then her practice and where her practice and the near death took her in terms of freedom. Every, there was no need to be afraid. Everything in the universe was exactly as it was meant to be. In that moment, I felt my spiritual beliefs transform into undeniable experiences. Buddhism had taught me the concept of interbeing, the idea that the universe is a seamless mesh in which every action ripples across the whole fabric of space and time. As I lay there, I felt how interwoven every human spirit is with every other human spirit. I felt how interwoven every human spirit is with every other human spirit. I realized that death only ends life, not this interconnectedness. A warm light of unconditional love encompassed me and I no longer felt alone. So appreciations for birth and death, birth and death, appreciations for being real with human birth and death, and the goodness that comes with our practice of just being here and being real, being honest, having feelings, thoughts, sounds, sights, tastes, touch, you know, reactions. We have all of that. And you've all stayed here and you all are here right now in this moment. And that will not continue forever, both in the conventional sense, right? We'll the retreat dies tomorrow. 
but also just for all of us. We're all here for a while. And we've had the great good fortune to spend a while together here. And there's a great fullness that comes with practicing together in this way and being mindful of birth and death. Let's sit for a minute or two. I have a couple just little announcements for part of the ending, which is we didn't do a... Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.